Hello, Paz. Slavo, how you doing? I'm great. The topic of our podcast today, Genghis Khan, or as you enlightened me, Genghis Khan. Yeah, so that's how it is most similarly pronounced to how the Mongols probably pronounce it is Genghis. But then, you know, we've, we've all said Genghis. We don't judge. It's kind of a GIF versus JIF situation. Like these little videos we see on the internet, they're originally intended to be called GIFs. But then just, you know, the people say, have spoken and it's it's GIF. <laughs> I definitely say GIF. Yeah, yeah. And it just sounds nice. Yeah, we don't judge. Genghis Genghis. All right, I'm gonna. I'm probably gonna stick with Genghis, but I might switch over to Genghis occasionally. Pass. <laughs> Real quickly before we get into it, um, how much did you know about Genghis Khan before starting your research? Yeah, so I didn't know too much. I knew the folklore that like X percentage of the population are descendants of Genghis Khan. Genghis mm-hmm. Khan when you know they pillaged and raped and uh, so I knew that. And yeah, I definitely knew he was this like ultimate conqueror, which turned out to be true by almost any metric. They're like, he is the greatest conqueror. If you look at land mass that was under his rule, he is the greatest conqueror. If you look at number of nations or groups of people overtaken, he's the greatest by like any metric by far, which definitely, you know, he was just a brutal, brutal conqueror. As far as what I knew about Genghis Khan beforehand. Um, did you ever play Age of Empires? You ever I heard have of that? not, but I've heard a lot of people like talk about Genghis Khan that way. Well, I was big into the game of Age of Empires. It's like this online strategy computer game. Anybody who's listening to it, who has played it, is is going to be like fist bumping <laughs> right now because it's it's kind of like a cult ish following game. But yeah. in I think it was Age of Empires two, Age of Kings, you could select different leaders from history. And Genghis Khan was one of the leaders you could select. And like the Mongolians. Wow. And do you fight other empires of different times? Like could you have yeah, you know, Genghis Khan Mongolian Empire fighting the Nazi Germany? It wouldn't go that advanced. But I think they pick time periods and then like over a certain amount of time because as the game you can like advance the yeah. technology of your civilization. So you might have the Mongolians versus like the Celts versus the the Britons and yeah. things like that. Is it a shooter game or is it like a strategy board game? It's like a strategy game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like you build a society and then you like create an army and then you go mm-hmm. fight other people. Yeah. All right. So another thing, let's do a segment that we've done before, two truths and a lie where we will tell at the beginning, we'll tell two truths about Genghis Khan and then one lie about him. Do you want to go first? You want me to go first? You can go first. I just kind of, I totally just mixed myself up. As I said, two truths and a lie, I realized that I think I came up with two lies and a truth. <laughs> <laughs> so you go first. So I can repair right. myself. Love it. Um, so the first one, Genghis Khan helped scrub about 700 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere. So he, he like huge amounts of positive things for the environment. That's the same amount of carbon that, you know, in a given year, we probably have from oil production. Another one, a truth or a lie, Genghis Khan's genes are in 0.5% of the world population. Like they carry his Y chromosome. And the last one, Genghis Khan, his famous attack move was while riding a horse, he would use a stick 
as a pole vault and he'd put it into the ground and then launch himself at an unexpected enemy. <laughs> that feels like a lot, but I hope that's the truth. <laughs> um, all right. Two truths and a lie. Or maybe two lies and a truth. <laughs> the first is that he was very tall in stature and that he was remarked as being very uh, large in his physical appearance. Wow. Yeah, I don't know about that one because, yeah, anyways, continue, continue. And then the second is that the famous story, the famous biography about him, The Secret History of the Mongols, was actually written in the 1300s or 13th century, one of the two. Yeah, and during the yeah the 13th century, like the 1200s, that is when his empire was in rule, just to give people the context. Yeah, so it was, so it was written in the 13th century after his death. Or was it? Or was it? <laughs> and then the third is that Genghis Khan translates to Sun Lord. Wow. <laughs> Do you know if that's true? Right off the top of your head? You All of them, like I have ideas, but we'll we'll find out. Yeah, if, we'll uh, see. Yeah, we'll see as we uh, as we advance on. So let's get started with a little bit of a uh, history of, of the man that we call. Oh, <laughs> that, that sounded good. You know, today, buzzing biographies. Yes, we are buzzing biographies. Paz, what do you got? What do you got over there? What are you drinking? Okay, um, a Sea Dog Blueberry beer. No judgment. Very nice. Very nice. I am drinking a. Bissell Brothers Substance Ale. The Substance Ale. All right. Let's get it started. Genghis Khan was not born Genghis Khan. <laughs> he earned it. He earned it. He was named Genghis Khan. He was not born Gen- Genghis Khan. He was named Genghis Khan later. Full disclosure, I'm sorry, everyone, for the butcher. <laughs> There's a lot of names of towns and people that I'm going to butcher, but that is okay because I'm trying my best and we're just trying to get the story across. <laughs> So he was born Temujin Borjigin. He was born around 1162 in modern-day Mongolia. His father was Yesuge, Y-E-S-U-G-E-I, and he was leader of the Borjigin clan, and his uncle were also Khans. I think a Khan, if you're a Khan, that means you're kind of like the leader of your clan. So... You can and in Mongolia at the time that uh, Temujin was born, Mongolia was like it was a very <laughs> so you would imagine. All right, you're you're in the late 12th century. It's kind of a hard time to be alive. Well, it was even <laughs> it was even harder <laughs> if you were in Mongolia because and, yeah because they like they had all these clans and they were seemingly always warring and there wasn't like this like big society where it was like you would imagine like a country like China where it was like this dynasty and everybody was under one rule and Mm -hmm. uh, or like you would think of the Mongolian dynasty. It was not like that when Temujin was born. It was very much um, clan here, clan here. They would get into like blood packs 
where mm-hmm. they would marry their children into each other. It was like very Game of Thrones like. Yeah, very Game of Thrones. And and like you're saying, it's not this huge nation that they're cons over or that they're living in. It's just a bunch of people who honestly, most of them are relatives and they kind of camp together, you know, along the same rivers. And they're like, hey, we're going to go this way. And they all protect each other from outside invaders. And there's a little bit of loyalty going on, but there's no real nation with like a set of laws and rules and buildings. It's just people camping together, making blood packs, you know, fighting off the enemies and so while, you know, his father and uncle, like they may have been cons, you know, it wasn't the, the cons that obviously Jengis is going to come to come to rule. Yeah. As. Yeah. Not as much like it wasn't like he was like this royal. He was um, his his father was definitely powerful. Um, yeah. And he was the leader of his tribe. But mm-hmm. it was it was very much not a um, he wasn't he wasn't this dynastic figure he was um it was much more local it was like he was like the the mayor or something like that (laughs) yeah you know so an interesting rumor about when he was when he was born was that he was born holding a blood clot in his hand in his fist like clenched in his fist yeah which is a sign that you're going to be a great leader yeah Uh, yeah i read that and it was like a folklore people like who knows if this is real i have a few questions you have a blood clot. Was that the mother's blood clot? Like, did he save her life? Is he, is this good for her? Not Probably. The, he's, not he's the question the, I would ask. <laughs> <laughs> not the question. <laughs> That's your question. Whose blood clot is it? <laughs> I'm wondering, like, is, is this a thing? Do babies come out and they I don't grab know. the blood clot, perform surgery on day one of being alive? i'm trying to i'm trying to think of a good response (laughs) so like a blood clot i don't know it could be i'm i'm going to assume that it was it was the mother's yeah yeah i would think so it sounds like you know he's helping his mother out day one and then the other thing yeah i i think it's supposed to be a sign that he would be like a great conqueror and warrior so it did kind of have that connotation of he'd also be this kind of great destroyer um, that he would become. Yeah, it could be. I mean, there's a lot of like shamans in the in the time. So we, I don't know if it was maybe something that was manifested after the fact. They're like, oh, did you know about Timujin? Yeah. He was born clenching a blood clot in his fist. <laughs> and he's going to be this great leader. But in the first however many years of his life, it looked like he was going to, he was kind of set up for that, that uh, clan style royalty, so to speak. He was going to be so. The way that it worked was, like we said, there was a lot of like blood packs or whatever. So mm-hmm. he, his father, agreed to to give him to. He was going to marry him to Borti, and this arrangement was made when Timujin was, I think he was like nine years old. Yeah wild <laughs> a nine-year-old like fiance <laughs> nine-year-old arranged marriage and which <laughs> it was like it was like it would go back and forth between just being like preposterous and then it would be like but they couldn't get married at age of nine so he sent him to Borti's family to stay with them until he reached the married the marrying age of 12 <laughs> So they they got to know each other, you know. That's not bad. Like 
three years of engagement getting to know each other before they marry at the ripe old age of 12. Yeah. Three three years, age nine to 12, where you may like, you may not understand what marriage is, but, but he didn't stay that whole time because what Temujin found was that his father had been poisoned by the, the Tatars T-A-T-A-R. <laughs> You're nodding to me. T-A-T-A-R. There's a hockey player named Miroslav Tatar. That's mm. spelled exactly the same way. So we're going to say <laughs> Tatars. Um, poisoned by the Tatars on his way back from do- dropping Temujin off. And the Tatars, the leader of the Tatar tribe, the chief, was Temujin Uj. Yeah, this, this town ain't big enough for two Temujins. Well... His um, Tim- <laughs> now this is gonna get confusing. So Temujin Genghis, his father had captured Temujin Uj and ended up naming Genghis Temujin after him. So, whoa, <laughs> yeah, that was how he got his name. And so, actually, I do remember this now. And the father, the reason he named Genghis what is to become Genghis Khan Temujin is when you capture a tribe or you raid them, you want to as he described it, completely dominate them. So part of that is taking everything they have, including the names. Then you take Temujin and you give it to your son. And it's like, that's how much we conquered your tribe is we, we have taken your name. I should have known when you said that, I was like, <laughs> I was thinking that you were going to say that you want to embrace their culture that you want to remember them in some way and actually it's just the opposite <laughs> you're you're actually removing them from the history books because you're replacing their names with your names yeah i mean i after reading this that they are it's a particularly gruesome like brutal place and time in history and they did have pretty extreme weather and very cold it's always interesting i feel like cold weather places lead to more brutal people mm, maybe you know, I, people are pretty like survivalist i think in cold water weather places there's less access to food yeah i think that's the major thing if everything's more harsh it's tougher to stay alive trying yeah. to make it through the winter yeah i think that's it i think everything is more harsh and it creates harsher people who then need to dominate the other tribe and take their name. <laughs> dominate the other tribe. Does that explain why people would sometimes decapitate the, their enemies and stack the heads of the fallen into pyramids? <laughs> <laughs> I think it plays a role. I think the weather plays a role. Yeah. I, I could see it being on some stuff. Other stuff, it's like, this is just so unnecessary. But I think I think some of it is that everybody was just so like horrible to each other. And the way that it worked militarily around this time, because they had all these fractured clans and there was no unifying government was basically like, all right, we're in tribe A and we're going to go pillage tribe B. And we're going to, and so we go in one day, we sneak attack them or whatever. We take them over. We drive them out of the tribe. We take their women and all their stuff and now we're the kings of both tribes. And then anybody that's left over from tribe B will just later then do the same exact thing to tribe A again. 
So I think like, and what, and which we will go into more is like the more brutal and horrible you are to try to be, the less likely it is that you're going to have the same thing done to you by whether it be B later on or by tribe C who's like, whoa, you really do not want to mess with tribe A because yeah. they will boil you mm-hmm. <laughs> or something yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. And later when we talk about how Genghis Khan unites all these tribes, you know, he points to how this kind of recurring counterattacks and attacks and counterattacks is never ending tribe warfare. Yeah. No, this just isn't this isn't the society that I would have wanted to necessarily live in. It's very interesting to learn about, but uh, not my. I'm more of like a Roman, I think. <laughs> so, Temujin's father poisoned, which then made Temujin. Um, so he had three brothers, one sister, and two half brothers. And the half brothers were older. His father had been married before his mother. I think so. But yeah, definitely the half brother was the oldest. And so when the dad dies, the half brother is supposed to be the leader of the house and maybe even marry and take his mom, as they t- termed it, um, because take Genghis Khan, Temujin's mom, who is not the half-brother's real mom. Mm, this is like some Cleopatra type stuff. <laughs> the so, Well, in, in Cleopatra, they were actually related. <laughs> this is like... Yes. Okay, so the oldest, the eldest, mm-hmm. a half-brother to Temujin slash Genghis. And so, like you said, he was kind of becoming the alpha. The, the eldest half-brother was like... Oh, I'm kind of the I'm kind of the alpha male. This is kind of my thing. I'm kind of the thing. and then he decides he's going to marry Temujin's mom because it's not his mom, but he's going to marry Temujin's mom. And yeah, the mom said something which implied she expected this to happen and was kind of like, "This is the way." So it, it very much seemed like it was going to happen. This is the way. I don't know if that was a purposeful or accidental Mandalorian reference, but I appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> so what do you do if your older half-brother is going to marry your mom you and your brother kasar go out on a hunt with vector and, <laughs> and kill him which is what happened yeah they shot an arrow into him i believe and let him bleed out um and then i think they have to be on the run now yep so do you think that a lot is talked about like how great he was do you think it's also you think of like a great sports organization or something like that Mm -hmm. where um in the case of genghis khan and his and his uh group it was that they were all like they all won like every battle they Mm -hmm. would go into battle and they won whether it be Mm -hmm. him whether it be uh jochi whether it be jeb Mm -hmm. um like they would just go on, they would go on conquest and they would win every battle. Do you think, how much of it do you think is that like, is Genghis or how much do you think, do you think it was maybe just like a group of just like all really gifted individuals? Or do you think that it was like Genghis was like, so such a good leader that he like brought everyone up around him? Yeah, that's a good question. So I do think later on their strategy was very effective and they were very clever and that is what they specialized in was warring cities and other nations 
Um, they were an all horseback army. And I think a lot of it can be attributed to Jengis and a lot of his techniques. Um, they had techniques when they were attacking a city to divert a river and then it would flood the city. And it was said every time they conquered a city, they would try to get all the information they could from the soldiers and the people who knew, you know, how to build weapons and such. And so they, they were so sophisticated in weapons and techniques to battle, but they, they didn't like give a rat's ass about buildings like they, or, you know, all these other techniques, they were all about war and that was their specialty. And so they had so much expertise and I, I do think a lot of it can be attributed to Jengis and kind of his emphasis of uniting the nation around being these ultimate horseback warriors. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I do think a lot of it can be a lot of, you know, their domination and gruesome, awful. Um, yeah. can be attributed to him. Yeah. I agree with that. Like a lot of the stuff, because it's there, some of the concepts are so simple. Like the, the idea of that, military intelligence is going to be something that they really focus on. Yeah. That was like, they were known that they would, if they were planning attacks, they had better intelligence than anybody else. Yeah. And that's something that is used in modern warfare today. Yeah. Um, they employed the pincer technique where they would um, split up the army and attack from multiple fronts at the same time for surrounding. Yeah. I mean, even today, like what's more important in a war than kind of strategy and technology? Like you want to have the best nuclear weapons. You want to have the best nuclear defense to detect, you know, any ballistic missiles and shoot them out. Or like, I, I think, you know, kind of the technology and strategy and um, investing in that. So, yeah, I definitely think that emphasis came from Genghis Khan as well. And just kind of their, how they lived at the time. They were, it was such a warrior type of people and they've been they've been doing it for years yep definitely and they would just completely ravage anybody in their path so it was like they were just like unstoppable because if you didn't stop them when they came through the first time you were never going to come like they would decimate yeah. you yeah. so so around age 16 he goes back back to borti marries her so his father gave him a a dowry of a black sable coat Yes, this wool coat jacket was a big deal. Like, I don't know why this jacket was so great, but whenever you read about the marriage between Genghis Khan and his wife, it was all about, like, he got this awesome jacket out of it. Yep. And uh, and Genghis had... So, Borti is very significant because it's his first wife. He had multiple wives. A reason that there's rumors about his uh, gene pool populating so far down the down the, down the modern tree is because he took many wives but Borti was significant because it was only children that he had with Borti that would be in line for succession of his throne down the line yeah so and he uh by many accounts seemed to be her like she was his like true love <laughs> yeah i mean I, I don't know uh about love but and i think we're about to get into when right at, right after they married and there was an invading group of people who took his wife captive yeah and during this so Genghis Khan 
kind of makes his decision where he takes his mother and maybe even a sister, but some people, they flee and they know this army group of people are coming to raid them and they can't beat them. And so they leave behind, Jengis leaves behind his wife and I, I think another woman or two, and they kind of, they intentionally leave them behind as booty. And then the other group of people will come <laughs> and this might, is, and, and the other group of people will come and take the, the Genghis Khan, Temujin's wife and these other women. And this was kind of how you got a wife was either you had the money, the influence for a dowry, or you stole a wife. Yeah. You would like take down the, a village and then you would just be like, you're my wife. Yes. And this was a very common, I may be mistaken, but I think that was what happened to Jengis' mother. His dad certainly had taken, just stolen a wife before. And now this happened to Jengis. And people say that Jengis' wife was like almost encouraged it, being like, save yourself. Like, I'll be fine. <laughs> and so it's kind of, and then Jengis, he later says about it, or it's, you know, told through oral history that he said you know only a fool fights a battle they know they cannot win i don't know what do you do here if you're you're running away on horseback you can save your mom but like you don't have room for your wife do you save the wife instead what would you do (laughs) what can you do so it's kind of like a knowing what we know now thing because knowing what we know now he then later comes back for his wife and I don't know, maybe with his mother, like if she's like older and of like an age that that um, whatever tribe they might they might be like, oh, like we have no like I don't want I don't want to marry you because you're older. So we're going to kill you or something. Mm-hmm. So maybe that could be a factor involved yeah. in it. But also, like, I think there's a better option than just leaving your wife. Like, I'm like, can you, like, hide her? Can you be like, run in the woods, I'll come back? Or, like, something? <laughs> Instead of being like, okay, just, like, stay here. <laughs> become, we're, we're, become, you're the, become the wife <laughs> of whoever. <laughs> but uh, it was, yeah, it's definitely not good. <laughs> it's definitely no, not no. good. But exactly, when you say, like... You're talking about this being like his true love. It's like, well, he did go back and save her, which is great. <laughs> he did go back and save her. But also, knowing how good of a military strategist he was, he leaves his wife. His wife gets taken. He then can go to Togrel, who is an old friend, old ally of his father's, and is uh, is a leader of another clan. And Togrel commits 20,000 warriors <laughs> to help him go fight to get his wife back. Yeah. So maybe he's like, oh, well, I'll leave you now. And then I'll use this as a way to um, start gaining a head of steam with like a reason to go fighting and trying to curry favor with my father's old allies, which is what he did. So it's kind of a cruel tactic to use, but I guess you wouldn't really put it past him. No, no. And yeah, that's the other thing. He's very like practical, as he said, no one's going to fight a battle if you know you're going to lose. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to lose. Like, Here's my wife. I'll come back though. While, uh, you know, a real chivalrous man would, I would assume at least fight for his wife or help her escape. Mm. I think you got to try to just like help everyone escape. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, it seems a little, uh, seems almost like a little tactical. Yeah. Very tactical. And I mean, yeah, Genghis Khan, he's probably, you know, it seems to be he's out for himself and kind of 
definitely as much power as he can puts the uh puts puts himself first that's for sure so as i mentioned he meets up with togrel he commits troops for the first attack that temujin goes on he also enlists the helps of a, the help of a childhood friend jamuka jamuka is very interesting because he like they have this weird friendship but then they become rivals yeah and they were very good friends as kids they were blood brothers which is a term i feel like a lot of people use nowadays like i'm assuming you've heard slave of blood brothers yes i have heard of blood brothers before i think the idea of the blood brothers like the idea is like you like have you ever seen in movies where they like cut their hands and then they shake hands yeah yeah that's exactly what i think of i mean blood brothers in any fashion you assume there's some blood associated with it in this case there and, is and some, and some brotherhood <laughs> and some brotherhood so at 11, they exchanged some toys. The year after that, they exchanged arrowheads, you know, for bow and arrows. And then as part of this second ceremony where they exchange arrowheads, they swallowed small amounts of each other's blood. Like, you know, cut themselves wherever and swallowed each other's bread. Yeah. Because then they believed, you know, your soul was part of your blood. So that made you blood brothers. And they also spoke words to each other that could not be forgotten. Yep. I was just thinking for as a celebration of our 100th podcast episode, do you think maybe we should just become blood brothers? <laughs> drink, drink small amount of blood. Absolutely. <laughs> the thought did cross my mind. Um, yes. But <laughs> so they kind of are both gaining power. They're both successfully get Borti back. Yeah, so they both are um, gaining power. And interestingly, a shaman declared uh, that the eternal blue sky had set aside the world for Temujin. Mm-hmm. And so there was Temujin was gaining a reputation of like the man of the people. Yeah, he was very much kind of a man of the people. But he always said he would eat the same stuff that the cow herders eat. Yeah. So eight, or 11, 87, things come to a head with Jamuka and he attacks Temujin mm-hmm. and Togrel is still Temujin's ally and they are soundly defeated by Jamuka and his troops. What uh, should be noted at the time was that while Temujin and Togrel were, were exiled at the time and Jamuka gains more power, he also didn't do himself very many favors down the line because he had 70 young male captives that he boiled alive in cauldrons after the battle. That is so gruesome. And even at the time, it horrified people. Yeah. Like made them completely, or made a lot of people disenfranchised with Jamuka. And the crazy thing is, like, what if he had defeated Genghis Khan and became this great ruler? Like, would he have been as bad as Genghis Khan was in terms of gruesomeness and defeating other countries and all the amount of people he killed? Like, would this guy have been worse? Like, to boil someone alive is so bad that even Genghis Khan and all the people under him, and even, as you're saying, a lot of Jamuka's members are like, <laughs> yeah, they're like, this isn't good. Well, the thing is with Genghis is that he had the combination of the brutality with the mm-hmm. intelligence. 
with his ability to outthink, outsmart the opponent. Yeah. yeah. So maybe Jamuka would have gone on a raid or he would have done an expansion. He would have taken over some things, but he probably would have been toppled a little bit faster. Like some of the people that Genghis went up against, he might not have, Jamuka might not have defeated them. Yeah. No, I, I agree. Jamuka probably didn't have the cleverness that Genghis had. Also, so boiling people alive, this, the first thing I think of is when we boil lobsters. And have you seen this thing in Portland, Maine, where there's some restaurant or something and they some restaurant or something (laughs) (laughs) and when they boil the lobsters alive they get them high on marijuana to ease (laughs) their path like it was just to to make it less painful for the lobsters when they're boiling them alive what do you think of that (laughs) uh I feel like if I was being boiled alive, I wouldn't. I would want to be drunk. I, dude, that was my first reaction. Was like I would want to be buzzing. Yeah, yeah. I'm like <laughs> slash blackout. And <laughs> I agree. It's such a. It's so. Yeah. I wouldn't want like, to be high. No, you want something stronger, like morphine, heroin. Like you're fucking. You need something to remove the pain. Anyways, that's just uh, kind of hilarious. <laughs> They get the lobsters. Yeah, they say when you like boil lobsters that you can hear them scream. Oh yeah, can confirm. Which I don't know if I've ever been a witness to that. I don't really like lobster. Yeah, I mean lobsters is delicious, but I mean should we just like chop their heads off first or something like make it a little easier? <laughs> I just I don't think marijuana is the answer. <laughs> um, hugs not drugs. <laughs> hugs on drugs. <laughs> Hug the drugs. <laughs> um, yeah, that it just doesn't sound like the right solution. I feel like that would make it more sensitive to the pain, but that's just me. Where were we? Jamuka boiling 70 captives. Yes, boiled 70 captains. Okay, so they say like the next 10 years of his life, there's not really much known. We could speculate as to what he was up to, but it wasn't for another 10 years, 1197, that the jinn dynasty kind of bestowed lower positions of power to Togrel and Temujin. And they began working with the Jin tribe to start doing expansion, military expansion. Yeah. You got to imagine during this time, he is just kind of garnering people in support of him, maybe conquering smaller tribes and just, you know, ingratiating people into his little nation he's got going on. Shaking babies, kissing hands. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so he he starts gaining power again with significance. He and Togrel start to grow apart. This is exemplified by Togrel refusing to marry his daughter to Genghis's son. This was viewed as a huge slight between the two of them. And it led to, as many slights do in these times, it led to a war between them. So Jamuka comes back in, into play. It's, this is like, this part reads very much like a movie where Jamuka now is with Timudin's old friend. They were now working together against Genghis, and then Genghis defeats them both in battle. Yeah, no, it reads such like a movie. You know, you have the earlier scenes where Temujin and Genghis are brother, 
blood brothers promising unspoken words and then later on you know they have a strife and they side with the enemy and they're battling yeah but they they definitely it's almost like a brotherly thing between the two of them because what happens is is Jengis is like winning against them and then Jamuka while he's like things are looking like he's going to lose he's actually betrayed by his own men and they capture him and bring him to Jengis and they say well here's the leader of the other group like this is all over and what Jengis does he doesn't say thank you mm-hmm. he everybody who betrayed Jamuka he kills them all mm-hmm. which show- is kind of yeah yeah, to show Jamuka that he like doesn't like that. Yeah, it was kind of interesting because you have this group of people who turn in Jamuka, their leader at the time. You would think Jengis, who is this guy, he's all about loyalty. And they show loyalty to Jengis where they're turning in Jamuka. But Jengis is upset because he's like, well, your current leader is Jamuka and you're showing no loyalty to him. I can't trust you. And he just kills them all. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're only if you're only as loyal as like the next powerful person, and it doesn't really <laughs> a good point. It's a good point. It doesn't really mean anything. Um, Jamuka is a little more set in his ways, and Jamuka chooses death over. Jengis like tries to befriend Jamuka, but uh, Jamuka chooses death over working under Jengis. Yeah, so I'm a little skeptical here. Like for Jamuka to just conveniently choose death. (laughs) And I don't know, I'm skeptical that it's not just Jengis kind of creating the propaganda and the like, I wanted to love my brother, but things didn't work out. My blood brother, (laughs) but, but who knows? Maybe maybe Jamuka honestly was just like, you know what? Just kill me. The other weird thing is like when people were assassinated or not assassinated, when people were executed at the time, they would, they would have a bloodless execution. Hmm. Read about this. No. So they wouldn't chop your head off or they wouldn't, um, they wouldn't give you the guillotine. Mm-hmm. They would do bloodless executions where it was often involved, like, like they would crush you to death or they would break your back and like do something of that sort. It was very interesting that they want this bloodless Just the way deaths. they did it. And I bet it's related to the fact that they thought kind of the soul and the blood, they valued, valued it highly. Mm-hmm. And I did, I did hear this and it sounded so gruesome where when they, they would kill people sometimes by making them handicapped, like breaking their spine and then just leaving them to like starve to death, animals to eat at them, whatever happened. That's horrible. Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Interesting note that I have in here. Had you ever heard of the term measuring against the linchpin before? I have not heard of the term, and that term is now messed up, that (laughs) saying. (laughs) Yes. So anybody who's ever used the term measuring against the linchpin, I don't know. I feel like I've heard it before. It sounded familiar when I was reading it. So can you use it in a sentence? Like, how is that expression used? Measuring against the linchpin, it would be like, so say you're in a running race. You're running a marathon. How do you measure against the linchpin? Which is probably like, how do you measure against the average? I think that would be how it would be used. Okay, interesting. And yes, please divulge us how this, <laughs> this saying came to be. How the term came to be. So the, the term measuring against the linchpin came from none other than Genghis Khan. And it came from as this time now goes when he defeats Jamuka and he's now into his conquering phase. 
his conquering and unifying phase. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't actually use this quite yet. This is further down the line. Yeah. Um, in his next phase, he's more of a unifier and less of a murderer. <laughs> but measuring it against the linchpin is this idea further down the line of where um, when they took over, when they were warring and conquering and they conquered an, a new area, they would be worried about retaliation from the people that they conquered because you expand and then you stretch yourselves thin people retaliate and then they expand back and it's this ebb and flow. So they're trying to stop that from happening. And so measuring against the linchpin is when they take their wagon and then park it. And then they take all the captives and they take all the male captives and they stand them up against the wagon and the linchpin is the center of the wheel, which like think of the biggest wagon you can think of and think of how <laughs> tall the wheel probably is. And you're probably taller than it. Yeah. And if you're taller, if your head reaches higher than the linchpin, they would just decapitate you by rule. Yeah. <laughs> it's brutal. And you have to imagine if you're right on the line, like you're hunching, you're <laughs> trying to make yourself as small <laughs> as possible. I know. I wonder what the... <laughs> I wonder like how much leeway they would give for people. <laughs> I, I bet a decent amount because what they're trying to accomplish here is they don't want these big, strong, the taller warriors, the people who are probably already set in their ways. They don't want to release them or have them as captives and then come back and, you know, cause issues with the, with the tribe while these, basically these younger people, people less than the linchpin, they have, um, males who you know they can kind of grow up in their ways have them become part of their uh, horseback army and they have younger girls who can be used um, to kind of grow their population so it is a very calculated move to just almost expand their military yeah and it's the idea that literally if you have no one who's big and strong enough today to retaliate you're not going to we don't have to worry. We don't have to worry about you for yeah. five, ten years. Mm-hmm. They can go on and do other things. Yeah. So in the early 1200s, Genghis is now moving through Mongolia, conquering, grouping up with tribes. He's gaining tons and tons of steam, uh, defeating the Merkits, the Namans, the Mongols, the Karetis the Tatars, the Uyghurs, all these various clans, all these various mm-hmm. tribes from uh, throughout Mongolia. He's defeating them. He's joining up with them. He's becoming a unified leader. Yeah, and, and the, the real challenge was Jamuka, which um, he had defeated earlier. Then after this, you know, they, they all just kind of fall in line. There's some, you know, some raiding, some battles, but a lot of, he's just really during this time after Jamuka uniting them. Yep. which had never happened before. Yep. And so it brought up within Mongolia, it brought up about a time of peace where the tribes were no longer warring with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They continued to war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, and yeah. 
after all this, um, he that's when he takes the name of Genghis Khan. It's about I don't think it's too long after he defeated Jamuka, you know, with a few more battles and defeating a few more of the people in Mongolia and uniting them. He takes the name Genghis Khan, and he is now like the the leader of all these Mongolian tribes, the leader of the like felt tents or something like that is how they termed it. He has they institute a couple of laws, but not a lot, but they have these great laws, which they all must abide by. One of them is you can't kidnap wives. <laughs> and he's putting an end to that, which is this very prevalent maneuver at the time to get a wife. And I, th- I think part of the reason he probably did this is he wants to prevent conflict. Like reading through his history, you know, someone would kidnap a wife and then there'd be this huge battle. And um, so I think it's kind of his way of preventing internal conflict amongst this Mongol nation. He also was very, he allowed like people to practice any religion. Yeah. It was, it's also very interesting that he was religiously tolerant. I felt like that was kind of a significant thing at the time where um, as we'll find when he is dealing with other societies, he encounters re- religious in- intolerance And he is just, it's just kind of not, he's very much a meritocratic leader, which is not necessarily common in this time. You have a lot of people that are religiously driven. You have a lot of people that are royal family driven, um, where they're the leaders are the people who are the children. I mean, we say that, but also some of his generals were his kids. His sons were his generals. (laughs) So, So. Yeah, no, that was an interesting thing is it was a novel idea at the time is he would put very powerful people in positions who didn't have, you know, the ancestry that warranted it at the time. He was like, you've shown loyalty to me. You've been effective. And he knew putting these people in strong positions, they'd be loyal to him. And so he kind of had this air of not being preferential to his family. But then later when he dies, obviously his kids just become the the next people in line to be in power of the country. But other than that, he was pretty novel at the time. For- <laughs> in the day to day, he was, uh, he was pretty. Uh, yeah. Another novel thing he did at the time was when they would loot and you would conquer a tribe, a nation, and you would take the loot and all the booty and pirate booty. <laughs> yes. And, good old pirate booty and and so he would take it and he would say okay first of all usually what happened is while people are killing and raiding they would be looting at the same time you know picking up this golden trinket for later and he was like no okay what we're gonna do is we are going to first just conquer the city make them submit then afterwards we will very methodically go through and loot everything and then properly divide it up this makes a lot of sense. It, like, think about when you play, I know you play, maybe some of our listeners, Fortnite, Call of Duty, <laughs> and, and you are battling with someone in a house. How tempting is it to like loot at the same time? Like, you know, you see something valuable there. Oh, I want to grab this gun, this bow and arrow for later use. It's so tempting. And this is what would happen. And then people <laughs> would escape because you're busy, you know, getting your own treasures. People would escape and then they would, you know, they're a threat because now you have this warrior on the run who's very angry so Genghis Khan was like we must just conquer the city and then we'll spread the loot um, so it's just another novel kind of clever idea from Gang- from Genghis Khan yep that's another example of kind of a military 
ideology that he advanced. So now that he's unified Mongolia, it's time to take down other <laughs> countries. Indeed. So he starts with Western Chia, XIA, Western Chia dynasty. He conquers them. He then conquers the Jin dynasty, who are the people who gave him his start. Yeah, he's just straight addicted to conquering, just just expanding and conquering. It's a shame. You know, it would have been great if he was like, hey, you know, we have enough resources for our people. We can just hang out. We're all comfortable here. End the pillaging. Maybe we start to work on our humanitarian effort, you know, work with the neighboring nations. Yep. No, but he's just obviously just straight. This is what he does. He's a conqueror. He's just expanding the empire. Yeah, exactly. He he has good ideas for society, but that's not what he's interested in. <laughs> he uh, He's interested in conquering, expanding, and taking other people's everything. <laughs> yeah, and it was basically their entire economy. Like, they didn't try and develop a bunch of stuff and trade it. They would just, hey, let's just go conquer this other dynasty. Let's go conquer this other tribe, and then we get all their... Didn't loot. the Vikings do that, too? Mm, it must be yeah i definitely see where that they would where they would just like just go and just take over yeah new lands they would just expand yeah, and that was their sense. way of gaining new stuff it was like yeah. all right we'll just take from <laughs> further away <laughs> yeah they did it on boats Genghis khan and his army did it on horses i mean it's not it's you know it's not the worst idea in terms of you know making someone else do all the hard work and then you just kind of swoop in and take it <laughs> do the fruits of the labor <laughs> so in the in the early 13th century Genghis decides that he wants to strike up a trade agreement with the Khwarazmian this <laughs> this is like a pretty exemplary story of how he operated so he sent a trading party of 500 people which then was met by a governor of the dynasty who was um, like the first people that it met when it got into the Khwarazmian dynasty in Khwarazmia. And the governor thinks, eh, this doesn't really make sense. So he thinks it might be some sort of espionage and some sort of Trojan horse type thing. So he just mm -hmm. kills everybody, which upsets Genghis. Yeah. Yeah. And he, like, did he send their shaved heads back? So... At first, the initial trading party is killed, mm -hmm. and then Genghis thinks, or either he thinks it's a misunderstanding, or he says, "All right, I'm going over this person's head." He hears what happened, and he yeah. says, "I'm going to go right to the Shah, which is the leader of the Khwarazmian mm -hmm. dynasty." And so he sends a party of three ambassadors to go talk to the Shah, be like, "Hey, you need to pay me back." for the fact that you did all this stuff. You killed all these people when I was really just trying to strike up a trade deal with you. So the Shah talks to them, says, yeah, I'm not going to pay you back. And then shaves their heads. And then one of the three ambassadors is Muslim. And that person he beheads says, yeah, no dice. I'm not going to be doing any negotiating with you. I don't believe you. And this... I would say in the if you go to like the, that Shaw's Wikipedia page, it's like, oh, he did this. Oh, he did this. And then it's like, and then he betrayed Genghis Khan. <laughs> he does this. He beheads, he shaves the heads of two of the ambassadors and then beheads the third. Yeah. And Genghis is like, 
all right, now you've got my, <laughs> yeah, yeah. what is the, what is the saying? He was like, you piqued my curiosity. Now you have my attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So a couple things here. One is really makes you think of the saying, don't kill the messenger. <laughs> yeah, Don't shoot the messenger. You don't want to be the guy who is being sent like, okay. Jengis is like, yeah, yeah. He killed the first 500. We think it was just a misunderstanding. <laughs> I want to send you three now to give him my message. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is with Genghis Khan, it's if you fall in line, you will be rewarded. And that's part of his allure is and when they are attacking a lot of these cities, these cities know that. They're like, if we fall in line with this Mongol empire, you know, he'll take care of us. He'll help you. Mm-hmm. But if you Join don't, up. yeah, if you don't, he'll just fucking kill you. Yep. And that's what the Shah does. He says, nope, I'm not, I'm not dealing with you. Yeah. Maybe Genghis is reputation had not preceded him to this point <laughs> where now he had to um he was very slighted yeah. by the shah and what does he do he says all right we're gonna gather our troops we're gonna get a hundred thousand cavalry and we are going to invade Khorasmia. yeah and i don't know the specific numbers and how many people uh this dynasty had but it was very typical for Genghis Khan and his men to be outnumbered and a lot of people you know they're feeling all confident and their strength in numbers being like whatever I can like give the middle finger to him and send back this dead messenger we, we have way more people in our military but the army the Mongolian army was so clever and effective that most of their battles they were outnumbered and would still come out victorious yeah I think cavalry also like horse fighting on horseback was also much stronger so yeah. they had that advantage as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they they invade and they split up. You can actually read. It's it's interesting reading about their how they their military tactics. They split up into three different armies and then went to three different cities and attacked on three different fronts at the same time. And yeah. they I think they um, people speculate that the shah kind of like separated his soldiers into like a bunch of different cities protecting those cities and what he should have done is just kept them all together and just hope to win one big battle yeah um which is not what he did and so city by city the mongolians just conquested Khorasmia. yeah and i think it was the first city i can't remember the name of the city but they basically like came through defeated the military yeah killed everyone sent the artisans back to mongolia because they like to keep the artisans so that they could learn their knowledge and have their society increase yeah they would kill everyone and then they would like burn all the buildings to the ground and just and clear everything out as well yeah they literally murder everyone Mm -hmm. during this conquest they would take people and they would have them all like go out into like a field and then just kill them out in the field and this was also when they did the pyramid of heads, beheaded heads. Yeah, they, 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 it was like especially brutal. Yeah, no, they were definitely some, trying to send a message. And I'll relate this back to my uh, two truths and a lie. It it was a truth where Genghis Khan helped scrub about seven hundred million tons of carbon from the atmosphere because they would just kill all these nations and depopulate, and then areas which had been farmed and they cut down the trees and made grass a bunch of 
forest, like huge, massive forest um, began to grow again because it had such a decrease in the population. And it, and like, yeah. they look at the, bu- the bubonic plague and all these big events and nothing helped the environment as much as uh, Genghis Khan just wiping out these populations. So it really shows how devastating and how much destruction he did. Yeah. Some people estimate that he killed up to 40 million people. Yeah, which like, did they even have forty million people? In, like, I can't imagine they had, like, they had like, a lot more than that. So yeah. he killed swaths and swaths of people. So yeah, and it was interesting that uh, it's he would not only in the case of Khorasmia he would not only kill everyone, but he would do they would do things to make it so like they would like wipe the society from existence. So they would like raise the buildings and they would like destroy the libraries and everything like that to make it so they would not only kill you and defeat you, but they would also remove your history so that you didn't exist anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they didn't want anyone coming back. They were kind of reminds you of earlier when they killed or Genghis father killed the neighboring tribe and was like, we need to take everything, even the name. Like we need to name our kid after you to just completely dominate your history. Yep. So that's uh it's just an example. And then the final city, Urgench was the final city that the Shah had fleed to and then was eventually defeated in. And when they sacked that city, there were fifty thousand soldiers that were given the task of killing twenty four people each which comes out to 1.2 million people that they just killed. Yeah. Insane. So a lot of expansion, (laughs) a lot of expansion. He ends up, I thought it was interesting that he lived to an old age, like someone who battled like this his entire life and was like always on like in all these battles. And he ends up living to an old age. So interesting. Like when you think of the famous people who have conquered large areas of land, Hitler, Julius Caesar, like these people all, you know, Hitler died by suicide in a bunker, probably. Mm-hmm. Julius Caesar, like the Senate, his colleagues attacked him. You don't expect someone like them to just kind of live to their ripe old age and just pass on the family business to the kids. Yeah, and he ended up dying in 1227, and uh, people think that maybe he got he fell off his horse while he was hunting, or he was like hit by an arrow during some sort of battle. Um, but he died. He made it a, a a longer time than most, and at that time he had set up kind of the future of his society before he passed, which is an example of because when you think about someone like a like a Hitler or something like that there. It's not as much about after it's more during they're not thinking they're thinking more present day and they're not thinking about the future generations to come. Genghis Khan, like he refused to hold hostages or captives, which I feel like is kind of interesting. As we've mentioned, he would just kill them or if he thought they were of use, he would use them. It is kind of interesting where he has these like more human aspects. (laughs) Yeah. 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 He was very smart and innovative and i think in a lot of ways he probably thought oh what's the point of having captives let's just we're either going to embrace them or we're just going to kill them yeah like there's there's no reason to just feed and or treat them as slaves like we're just gonna 
we're going to go one way or the other. Yeah. It was yeah, kind of exactly. his thought process. Um, so at the time, at the time of his death, he had expanded into Russia, parts of Russia, parts of Eastern Europe, Afghanistan, Western Shia and the Jin dynasties in the East. Yeah. No, at the time of his death, I think that area he was under, he was control over. was about the size of Africa, which is way larger than the North, you know, North America, South America, just a huge swath of land. Mm-hmm. And then transfers his throne to Ogade, um, who is one of his sons, not Jochi. Yeah. Ogade, actually, he was the great Khan, and he continues the military expansion after Genghis's death. And this is back to true, two truths and a lie. They not only do they keep expanding, they expand faster and they take over even more and they just keep going. So Genghis sets them up on a on a large path ahead. Wild. Very wild, very wild. Well, if you think about um, um, in the Middle East, where a certain country that we may live in has had situations where we have maybe toppled governments where we say, uh, ooh, we, we think that this person is a dictator, so we're going to uh, assist with toppling the government. And then it creates a situation where it's the opposite, where they take a strong leader for good or wor- for better or for worse and they remove them from power and then there's a lot of fragmented it, there's a power vacuum that's created and there's a lot of fragmented warring between people and then there's no peace in the area and what Genghis did was it was kind of the opposite he sucked up all the power <laughs> consolidated all of it and it created a peaceful time within Mongolia yeah yeah um like I, I took a class in college about bandits and it was basically like once people learn these skills, like they go in the military and they learn how to like destroy and like kill, that's their skill now. Like that's their profession. And it turns out like a lot of bandits come from the military. And it's kind of the same thing with Genghis Khan where it's like he got to that power because he just conquered and just continued doing what he knows. Yeah, definitely. He just kept doing, he kept doing what he knew, kept doing what he loved. Two truths and a lie. Oh, one other thing about his burial. When he was buried, he like explicitly didn't want anybody to know where he was buried. So he said, do not give me any grave marker. They said that they like, um, they say, we don't know exactly where he was buried. They killed everyone on their way to go bury him. Yeah, and, the rumor, yeah, and then like those people got back and they killed them. <laughs> it was like this chain. It's a real JFK murder. scenario <laughs> where they killed they killed the people who killed the people who killed the people, yeah, yeah. and um, they, supposedly they may have diverted a river to flow over where he was buried, <laughs> so that so that people couldn't find his burial site. Um, oh. He didn't want any markings or any hubbub about it. But in modern day Mongolia they have like a mausoleum for him. It's not where he was buried, but yeah, um, they have a mausoleum for him. He's on all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and they know the large area where he was buried. And actually when Soviet Union overtook Mongolia, they had a huge f- fortress, like miles and miles surrounding it. And because like the Soviet Union, they very much, they wanted the same thing. They wanted to completely erase history and they didn't want people in the Mongolian empire to be like, yeah, like this is our guy and like have a movement around him. 
So they like have this huge fortress and military power surrounding just like this large area was where it was believed he died, which is also interesting because it's like, then Genghis Khan is like kind of a hero to those people. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's true. It's like the height of your society. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of weird because he's like almost a Hitler. Yeah. I mean, he is responsible for the deaths of like percentage points of the world population at the time. Yeah. A significant number of people that he killed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's like Mongolians, George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's on like everything. He's on like coins and. Uh, all right. Um, let's. So we get to the two truths and a lie. Two truths and a lie. My three were um, that the secret history of Mongolia was written in the 13th century. That is true. Um, it sounds like a podcast, <laughs> which is why I thought it was interesting. <laughs> it's because it sounds like it's like secret history of, um, but no, it turns out it was, it's the oldest known Mongolian literature. So yeah. that was, uh, that was true. Genghis, uh, Genghis Khan was quite tall. He was also very tall in stature. So that is also true. Yeah. And, uh, Genghis Khan does not mean sun Lord. It means universal ruler. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Going through, uh, my three. So yeah, as already mentioned, Genghis Khan did help scrub about 700 million tons of carbon from the atmosphere by just wiping out populations and then trees growing back in these places. Genghis Khan is, they um, they estimate 0.5% of the world population today carry his Y chromosome. And the lie, so it is not documented that Genghis Khan's famous attack move was while on a horse using a pole as a vault, doing a pole vault from the horse to then launch himself and attack the unexpecting enemy that that in fact was a lie well that may not be true we wish it was true (laughs) that would have been very cool on that two truths and a lie note that is the we will wrap up the podcast on Genghis Khan and we will see you next time goodbye everyone